All right, my guest today on the podcast is Pastor Jason Kim. He's the senior pastor of La Habra Christian Church down here in Southern California. He also has a YouTube channel called Pastor Jason Answers. And today we're going to be talking about the new apostolic reformation. So um, Pastor Jason, thanks so much for jumping on the podcast here and agreeing to have this discussion. I'm happy to be here. Thanks, Dennis. All right, great. So um, a lot of people aren't familiar with this terminology of new apostolic reformation. So let me do a little bit of a, a brief overview. So this is a um, term that was coined by, I believe, by C. Peter Wagner, who was a professor of church growth at Fuller Seminary. And he, um, you know, my basic understanding is he saw certain leaders in the body of Christ that had similar characteristics. And he made an argument that essentially these are modern-day apostles. And, um, and so he put a bunch of people in this type of group. And I think the idea was more of an academic, you know, exercise in terms of trying to identify the characteristics of apostles and stuff like that. And so, um, to be honest, I was not familiar with this term um, until, I don't know, four or five years ago or something like that. And um, and I was like, okay, who are these new apostolic reformation people? And I, and I looked at what was about what was being said and I was like, oh, these are all, these are all a bunch of people that I like <laughs> and that I listen to. And so I was kind of surprised by that because I had never heard of this movement or anything, but these are people that I had followed for many years at this point. And so what I've kind of find, what I've found about this discussion is that term new apostolic reformation tends to be um, a term that's used by people who are outside of the movement who are speaking about it, something like that. People who are inside of this movement aren't even aware of this term or right. you know anything like that. And there's no, um, there's not, it's not a coordinated movement, right? There's but no also club. There's a point in which uh, there's an emphasis on reformation. I mean, they could have easily called it restoration because that's what they really believe. But just like the Protestant Reformation was really not starting a new religion of Protestants, but it was really a restoration of real gospel, real biblical truth from back in the first century. So we considered it a Protestant Reformation of the former truth. So also the New Apostolic Reformation are saying, we're not coming up with new ideas or new things. This is what should have been restored back in the first century. So they're pretty much emphasizing that we're bringing back what is right. truly biblical. Right, right. So, um, you know, probably the, the the most famous people of this movement are people like Bill Johnson, right? Mm -hmm. Bill Johnson, um, you know, C. Peter Wagner, for those who are familiar, but most people aren't that familiar with him um, these days. And, um, man, who who else is, like, pretty big in this movement? I, I, Rick would Joyner, Mike Bickle be considered Cindy a big Jacobs. one? Cindy Jacobs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so... These guys would all be considered NAR people. And there's a lot of controversy for those who are unfamiliar with this. Um, there have been books written. I read a book called, I think, God's Super Apostles by a professor at Biola who talks about the NAR. So there has been some talk about this. I think more in more um, reformed circles, I would guess, mm -hmm. that there's kind of like increasing talk about this. And so I figured, hey, this is a great opportunity for us to come together, have a, a great discussion, because I tend to be a little bit more pro-NAR, so to speak, and mm -hmm. Pastor Jason is a little bit more on the other side. And so, But we, we're dear brothers in Christ. We appreciate one another. And so the heart here is to have a good faith conversation, dialogue, um, just to understand one another and kind of flesh out our our understandings of this movement. And I think this is going to be helpful for anybody who's just uh, listening to our conversation here. Mm -hmm. So... Um, Pastor Jason, let me go ahead and, and start off with this question. Well, maybe um, it would be a good idea to talk about my background a little bit in relation to this issue. So you sure. know where I'm coming from. So, sure. So for those who are listening, I am a five-point Calvinist. I am Reformed. So I'm not in the middle camp or whatever. I'm on the other side pretty much saying uh, we don't like those who call themselves apostles and things like that. I went to Westminster Seminary, which is fully Reformed. And uh, I started off as a cessationist, which who believe that there are no currently a continuation of these charismatic gifts like tongues and things like that. But then after doing, I, I did a lot of missions, uh, summer mission trips. And in one of those uh, revivals, I encountered a demon possessed person. It was my first time doing a, I guess, deliverance ministry and casting out demons. And I was like, I never really learned about any of these things in my seminary. And so that's when I had to reevaluate my learning and my education. 
And that's when I wanted to uh, discover uh, the charismatic side. And that's what I went to. Uh, that's when I started reading books from Rick Joyner, Derek Prince, and I started learning about. Ex- I, so I so I did deliverance ministry for two years, and I and I and I went about in these uh, charismatic circles for a while. I went to a Benny Hinn um, event, also another event by Todd White, and I and I started going to these more charismatic events and to uh, figure out. I mean, what I was missing because obviously I saw something and experienced something that wasn't really. I wasn't taught in my seminary, so I decided I need to really read up on this. So I read a few uh, books by Benny Hinn and other charismatic leaders. Now, there is a difference between just charismatic Pentecostals and, of course, the NAR movement. But just to give you a taste of what I was just learning, and I saw a lot of good in the NAR movement. Uh, I also uh, read some books from uh, Peter Wagner when I was at Fuller. I started off at Fuller Seminary because they do have the, the best missions department in the world. And so, because uh, I was more concerned about church growth when I read Peter Wagner's books, but then I also saw that he was really into these uh, new teachings about apostles and prophets and all that sort. And so, I saw firsthand uh, what the charismatic circles and the NAR, what they teach, and how people are educated in that field. And so, uh, some things I liked, but a lot of things I did not like uh, based on what I believe the Bible teaches. So I, I didn't uh, experience any uh, negative um, experiences like um, I wasn't hurt by them or anything, but just the evaluation of, I guess, both sides of the issue. So I'm no longer a cessationist. I do believe that charismatic gifts uh, do um, continue, but um, I think the NAR takes it to the next level. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for that. That's great. That's a really interesting history. Um so my, you know, my understanding of, you know, this idea of the NAR is the idea that God is restoring the church, right? So there's this expectation in lots, lots of the charismatic church that um, the church is being restored and is being um, matured as the age progresses, right? So mm-hmm. that all flows from a type of continuationist theology, right? That these things have never stopped. So I'm kind of curious, just on on this level, before we jump into um, some of the stuff we had talked about, how do you see, so you believe that the gifts of the Spirit have continued today. Mm-hmm. Do you believe that, that uh, there are modern-day apostles? Have apostles continued, or do you believe that they have ceased? Now, I think that is a real good question, real good issue, because I think that's where they cross the line. I do believe in continu- continuationism, and as you briefly talked about, that, that God is restoring, God is still working, the Holy Spirit is still very active today, uh, he is the most active part of the Trinity. Uh, this is the age of the Holy Spirit where we see a lot of workings and miracles being done by the Holy Spirit. But I think uh, I don't think the first century was missing so much that so many things have to be restored. I mean, the Bible talks about the church was founded on the, I mean, was built on the foundation of the apostles, and the prophets. Now, before I became a pastor, I used to be a civil engineer, a foundation engineer. The thing with foundations is that once they're built and it's built well, you don't have to go back and fix it. You don't have to go back to foundations because they're built. And the New Testament doesn't put any much emphasis on apostles, especially when you compare early New Testament to later New Testament. Um, you see a shift from apostleship to more of like elders and deacons, like bishops. And there, although there was a, you could say there is a, standards of who sh- who and how we should elect and appoint elders there's no instruction of how we can appoint or recognize the calling of apostles it seemed like the apostles especially apostle paul wasn't concerned about how to uh continue the apostleship to to appoint the next apostle which would have obviously been either timothy or titus his disciples and yet um there was no instruction about how to appoint new apostles and uh, even himself, he had to make a huge deal saying that I'm a real apostle because by most standards of the day, he shouldn't be called, considered an apostle because he was not part of the Twelve. Um, he never really uh, was under the tut- tutorage of Jesus. So he makes it a point, I saw Jesus. He spoke to me clearly, directly on the Damascus Road. I mean, he makes it a huge point. And even when they were, I guess, doing one specific succession of apostleship in the New Testament, which was um, to replace Judas, um, 
there were only two options. Although more than 500 people have seen Jesus, and I'm sure there were lots of spiritual, spiritually gifted people during that first century, and yet only two people were allowed to either succeed uh, Judas as an apostle. And so in the New Testament, we don't really see an emphasis of carrying on the role of, or the office of apostleship. And in, in establishing new churches, um, we see an emphasis on bishops and just uh, house churches, but no calling of apostles. Got it. Yeah, so I hear you. So it sounds to me like you you believe that apostles have ceased. Now, is that because you believe that there were the o- only the original 12, or do you believe there were more apostles um, in the first century? I think it was originally the only only the original 12, not just who they were, but the purpose that they fulfilled. The purpose was to build the foundation of the church, which is mm-hmm. to complete the Word of God, the New Testament. So although we do say the book of Acts is still being written to this day because the Holy Spirit still continues, yet I believe, along with most Christians, that the canon is closed. God isn't writing new books of the Bible. We're not going to uh, hear from this new apostle saying, I have the 67th book of the Bible for the new time, the new age, the 21st century. We're not going to have that because the canon is closed. And the purpose of the apostles were to uh, do acts of miracles to show that they are truly giving the word of God, the the, uh, the authorized word of God. And so uh, the, their job was to establish the church, which means establish the word of God, which will continue on to generations even after they've passed. And so since their work was done, the foundation was built. And the New Testament speaks of that in in past tense, not that God is still using apostles to continue to build the church, but it says uh, the church was built on the foundation of apostles, prophets, and all these people. And so we do have the gospel complete. We do have the canon that's complete. And so we don't need another apostle to come out and say, hey, I have the new revelation of God to add to the 67th book of the Bible. For sure. Yeah. Well, I think we're agreed on that. Um, I'm not aware of any who claim to be modern-day apostles who would argue that they have the authority to write new scripture. Right. But you're right, because they know that's specifically crossing that line. But when they give prophecies on what will happen, they, they say it in the tone of, thus saith the Lord. Now, they would never say, let's write this down and add it to the Bible. But they speak on the with the authority of God. Now, I still believe that prophecies still happen, but not in the way that NAR says it. I, I, even some people of the Pentecostal and the Charismatic camps will not go to the NAR camp because, um, for example, um, Wayne Grudem wrote a book called The Gift of Prophecy. And Wayne Grudem is Reformed, and he is also a Charismatic. You could say he's like the Peter Wagner of, of Reformed Charismatics. And so the way he defines prophecy is that it's more localized, and it could have some mistakes because uh, having been in the camps, uh, the way we do prophecy is, is really by feelings. And it's all about uh, discerning with your wisdom. Is this feeling from myself or is this feeling from the Holy Spirit? But if you know feelings, of course, it's very subjective. And so the, you get better with practice. And I was able to prophesy over some people with even some precision uh, because I had practice on it. But still, at the core of it, it's still all about how I feel about this person, but is this feeling coming from the Holy Spirit? And I, and I believe that is, that's okay. That I think God, Holy Spirit uses that and he works among groups of Christians during prayer and during counseling to give us those kind of revelations. But when, I, when, when Cindy Jacobs or Rick Joyner goes up on the pulpit or on the stage and says, um, World War III is going to happen as Cindy Jacobs said, I think last January um, about Iran World War III, Iran's going to start World War III. Now, she says those things, and other other, other NAR prophets uh, says things with authority that this or that event will happen, and of course, it, it didn't happen. Yet, when they say it, it's spoken with such authority as if it's thus saith the Lord, and I have a problem with that. Sure. Well, there's, I mean, there's a number of different things I, I want to respond to because um, there's so much good stuff to talk about here. Um well, let's but, go. But, let's I, just stay- but let me just say about apostles. Um, just because someone calls himself an apostle, I don't automatically call that person a heretic or oh, that's false theology. Because I still believe in Peter Wagner, how he defines apostle. I mean, I still teach Peter Wagner's list of 
spiritual gifts, including the nine charismatic ones. And the gift of apostleship, the way I teach it and the way it was originally presented by Peter Wagner was that it's the gift of uh, church planting. And so I, I really do see that role as, a, as the gift of apostleship of like planting churches and really setting up leaders and appointing elders and things like that. And that's a real gift that God still gives. So sure. when I do see or hear someone saying that he's an apostle, a red flag does go up, but I don't immediately say, oh, that person, you can't trust that person. Because I think even if some people have wrong theologies regarding this matter, um, I think they could still be my brother in Christ. Sure. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Um, okay. So let's let's okay. Let's stick on the apostleship question. Um, what I'm hearing from you is it doesn't seem like the New Testament really places a great importance on establishing the succession of apostles right. or how to anoint new apostles mm. or things like that. And um, and I appreciate that. I do think though there's there's pretty strong evidence in the New Testament that shows. Um, you know, that there were apostles, that that was an expected part of the church. And it does seem to me that um, the arguments that you gave were very similar to the cessationist arguments that I hear um, concerning the gifts, meaning the argument for the continuation of the gifts and the continuation of apostles seems very similar to me, right? Mm -hmm. It seems um, like, you know, the argument for the continuation of or the cessation of the gifts of the Spirit was always hey, God gave these um, this normative power in order to establish Scripture. And now that we have Scripture, we don't need these gifts, right? That is the most common argument that I have heard mm-hmm. on in the cessationist camp. And again, it's this idea that, you know, Scripture has replaced these things. Mm-hmm. And I, and that is it's pretty much the same argument that I feel like I'm hearing from you, that the apostles were really just there to establish Scripture, and now we don't need them anymore. And my, my problem with that is that there's nothing explicit in the Bible that says that. So I'm, I'm fine with that being a theory, right? right? I think that that's fine as a theory. Hey, let's investigate that theory. Let's explore that theory. It might be true. But always, uh, from my perspective, if there's not clear Scripture that explicitly says that, then it's not something that, you know, we can take in a dogmatic kind of sense from my perspective, right? You know, I agree with you, but if there was a specific statement saying something like apostles are no longer needed because of the canon of scripture or anything similar to that, then we wouldn't be having this discussion because that would have been a clear line that people wouldn't cross. But you're right, it doesn't say that. Yeah, for sure. And so um, I would just simply say on this, you know, there, there's, there is no explicit passage, right? So right. all of us agree, like, we are trying to, we're trying to discern the question of modern day apostles, right? My understanding of an apostle, and, and I appreciate that you, you know, pointed out C. Peter Wagner's, you know, paradigm for the idea of a, a church planner and a missionary. I do think that that is how many apostles function. And I, um, you know, I tend to see that that title of apostle as being like an ambassador or an emissary, right? So from the Greek word, we're talking about a sent one. The idea is that this person is called and anointed to represent the kingdom of Christ, right, to another people or another nation or things like that. But what we see in the New Testament is we've got both kinds. So obviously we have Paul, who is that type of missionary church planning apostle, but we've also got Peter. Right, and Peter doesn't seem like his primary function is going out and planting new churches in several places. And many of the original, you know, apostles, we do see that they um, they don't necessarily function in that way. And all I'm arguing, arguing here is that I think there are different kinds of apostles. And so while I do see like a lot of great missionary leaders, I could I could believe that they have an apostolic calling or something like that. Um, I do think there is a place for those who aren't who don't necessarily fit that particular mold. And I think we're agreed no new apostle or modern-day apostle um, has the authority to write Scripture. And I hear what you're saying that, you know, it's not, they're not explicit about that. They're not saying, hey, my word is equal to canon. Um, But what you said was that when they speak, they presume to have that type of authority. Mm-hmm. But to be honest, Jason, that's that's something that I have never seen or heard. I've never seen that in any of those leaders. And in fact, all the indications are precisely the opposite. I think, you know, several of them have, have been very explicit 
that whatever apostolic authority they have, it does not equal the level of canon. And they can miss it. They can make mistakes. They can be wrong about these prophecies. And my personal paradigm is that as a, as a whole, the body of Christ is very immature when it comes to prophecy. So when I hear Cindy Jacobs um, you know, speaking, by the way, I, I personally wouldn't consider her uh, an apostle. I, I put her more in the prophet camp. Um, when I hear her give a prophecy, I I don't take it as scripture for sure. I mean, in fact, you know, all of the you know teaching in the New Testament is that we have to test these prophetic words, right? Every prophetic word is to be tested, and that's precisely because they can have error, right? And so I think that's an important thing that we do not take prophecies from even well-established leaders as though they're scripture or something like that. No, my paradigm is all these guys can be wrong, can be very wrong. And I tend to think that there's a lot of mixture. And this is this is my personal paradigm. I think the church is being restored, but as it is right now, when it comes to things like prophecy, we're still very immature as a body. And so because of that, when I'm hearing prophecies, I'm to some degree expecting that there's going to be elements of error in those prophecies, even if they're largely right. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And I don't have a large disagreement about that, but you know how the Catholics uh, see the Pope. Even the Pope will not say, I'm going to add to the canon, this is the word. But the way he speaks, people consider his words to be like the word of God. Even though they'll still say the, word, the Bible is a higher word of God. Yet, um, and even when you see, a, in, when you go to uh, charismatic conferences, NAR conferences, and they prophesy over you, uh, we understand that to be, uh, of course, first of all, it's very vague and general but when they do start getting specific we do understand that there could be some error in it because that's the nature of prophecy in this circle but i think it's a different level when cindy jacobs or rick joiner uh, makes a prophecy on the stage it's not it's not a localized thing during prayer hey my brother i i sense that there's hurt in your heart based on uh, three years ago something happened it's not just that but as you mentioned as a representative of the movement almost like a pope. They're saying things um, about what's going to happen in the future or the, the state of things right now. And yeah, as you mentioned, I, I'm glad some people will take it with a grain of salt that you know it may not be totally authoritative, but the way they present themselves is more of like, I'm an apostle. This is God's word. I mean, to be honest, I've... I've... I've never heard any of the ones that I really respect. So I'm, mm -hmm. I can't speak for everyone because, again, this the membership in this club is somewhat nebulous, right? Right. But the guys that I really respect are guys like um, Rick Joyner, Mike Bickle, um, Lou Engel, some of these guys. They, I've heard them take pains, right, to explain that they're not speaking with some type of infallibility or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. And I... I don't know, you know, I don't I don't know if there's Benny Hinn out there or some of these guys that I'm not as familiar with who are giving indication like that. So I can't absolve the entire movement, right? Mm. But I would simply say that look, I think that that's wisdom to take any of these prophetic words and test them, right? And test them. And I think one of the one of the problems with the movement um, in general and is that we there's not good teaching. There's not mm. solid doctrinal teaching. And so People do, can come into these movements not understanding some of these aspects and hear things like, oh, this person's an apostle, and they can attribute them with that kind of you know, authority. So I'm not saying that doesn't happen. I think it probably does happen a lot. I just don't think that that's intended by many of these leaders, right? They're not right. intending to do that. But because they're, look, there's a lot of different teachings. Everybody's teaching different things, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like different people have different qualifications for what makes someone an apostle. You go to some churches and half the people there are apostles, you know, like, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah I, I, get, I get it. I don't think that's, that that's not healthy at all. So I, I totally understand there are serious um, problems in all this stuff. I attribute that to our general immaturity in the church and how new a lot of this stuff is to the body in general. Right? Like, I don't know, like, you know, before C. Peter Wagner in the 90s, I don't know that there was a common, you know, understanding that there's lots of apostles around. I don't think there was, right? So mm -hmm. because of that, all of this stuff of us 
learning or discovering or however we want to put it that there are modern day apostles well we're still in the learning phase of how to treat those people how to understand their authority where it it where they have authority where they don't have authority so i understand that there's lots of confusion over this right mm-hmm. and i wish that you know we could have one of my strong desires in the charismatic church is that you know we would have a strong value for doctrine that we would really care about these things you know I, I would guess that one of the areas where we're probably in a lot of agreement is in the charismatic movement there is an over reliance on prophetic revelation mm. and i yeah. think that's really unhealthy when you're building doctrine off of prophetic revelation but i think that's the reason because there's such because it is more exciting to have more current events and more of a prophecy and that's why there's less of an emphasis on doctrine and and bible study and uh, yes, I, I'll, I'll say that there are some charismatic leaders and NAR leaders who do focus on doctrine. And if Peter Wagner is one of them about biblical truth and things like that. I, one person that I discipled, he is now one of the leaders of, you could say, like the NAR camp, like under uh, Lou Engel's camp. And I, I highly respect Lou Engel. I prayed with him several times and I, and I really love his heart. And there's, there's no emphasis on doctrine because there is no unified doctrine, as you mentioned. I mean, mm-hmm. people believe different things. If I want to be specific, I would say Kenneth Copeland, who is recognized as an NAR leader, is a false teacher. And some NAR leaders will also agree, yeah, he's a prosperity preacher. Uh, he's not a gospel preacher. Um, and yet, um, like Benny Hinn, I mentioned that he is also a false prophet. And some NAR leaders like him. Some NAR leaders don't like him. And so there's no unified the doctrinal stand that they could stand on saying, well, he crosses the line here or there because it's more emphasis on what is the Holy Spirit saying right now to our generation, to our people. And since the emphasis is there, um, the word of God seems more uh, like the past. Like it's still important, but uh, this is like I could I could digest this better and it, it helps me grow more. So. I want to stick to these prophecies and, and focus on the Holy Spirit and, and focus on my prayer life. But these other, but reading the book of Leviticus uh, is, is not doing it for me. So it's more of an emphasis on what practically works, more of an emphasis on experience uh, in this movement. So they're not anti-Bible. I'll definitely say that. They're not anti-Bible, but because of the emphasis on experience and what works for you right now, which is what Peter Wagner once said. He said, uh, how I form my theology is what works. But I don't think that's a good guideline of what's a good way to to stick to doctrine. For sure. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I think um, that's the hard part about talking about this movement because it's not, it's not a denomination. It's not a movement in any traditional sense. Really what it is, it's a bunch of, it's a bunch of separate leaders who agree that there are modern-day apostles. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. Uh-huh. And they've been kind of lumped into the same movement. So, yeah, there is no cohesive doctrine, and we're pointing out some of the deficiencies or the weaknesses of the the Pentecostal charismatic church as a whole, I think. But to be honest, from my perspective, I think a lot of that is because of the bad doctrine in the more conservative reform camp. And let me clarify there. I'm not necessarily trying to say that reform theology is terrible or something like that, even though I personally don't agree with it. But what I am saying is that there was a rejection in huge parts of the church of the Pentecostal movement. There was a rejection of a lot of this stuff. And so what happened was you, you know, you had these churches forming, being rejected by the respected teachers in the church, something like that. Right. And so I, I simply say this, I love people like William Grudem, right? I'm so thankful that there are a lot more people on the more traditionally conservative side who value doctrine, who are, and like yourself, are becoming open to the reality of the gifts of the Spirit, and now who are bringing their value for doctrine into the movement. I think that's really, really important. So mm-hmm. I simply say, I think it, it works both ways, because what you have is you have people who, um, they've had these experiences, they know they've had these experiences, but many of the re- respected Bible teachers are saying, no, your your experiences are demonic, they're wrong, and, and so they go, well, I'm going to go find the teachers that you know, can help me understand my experiences, right? And so I think that's a that's part of the problem here. And I would just simply say, I and this is you know what I personally teach. I think we need to have a high value for the word, for the scriptures, mm-hmm. and a high value for the spirit, right? And mm-hmm. those are the teachers that I I like. So again, I'm not familiar with Kenneth Copeland. I have heard some pretty negative things about him, 
But guys like Mike Bickle, I can tell you that guy has a very strong value for doctrine, right? He's teaching Bible constantly, and that's I, You're I right. appreciate. I, and I met up with Mike Bickle in uh, at IHOP in Kansas City, and uh, there are some things that he disagrees about the doctrines of some NAR leaders, including uh, Dominion theology or or postmillennialism, and sure. uh, he has a more uh, level-headedness towards uh, the NAR. You might even say he's more of a very strong charismatic. Maybe not even NAR. I I think he believes in modern day apostles. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, true, to be true. Honest. He does believe that. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and and that's part of the the difficulty here, right? Because we're, we're people like there's it's there's no denomination. There's no clear denomination with the denominational beliefs and cre- you know it's like mm-hmm. without that structure. Yeah, it's hard to know what everyone believes about everything. I mean, even the qualifications for apostle, right? I think that's something that we should probably explore here um, a little bit. Because we do see, for example, in the New Testament, we see, um, I believe it's to the church of Ephesus in Revelations 2, right? God tells him, you've tested those who claim to be apostles, and you've found them to be false. So this idea that we're supposed to test those who claim to be apostles, I think that's really important. But a huge part of the problem here is, what exactly are the qualifications for apostle? What are the criteria and you go into a lot of places, and like I said, I've I've been to places where it seemed like everybody was being called apostle. And I'm just like, what is going on here? And there is this thing that I've seen in many parts of the movement where everybody wants to be an apostle, right? Because mm-hmm. of course, right, if apostle is the is the boss or whatever, of course you're gonna have a lot of people wanting to be the apostle, right? Right, and uh, it's it's a calling. I mean, God calls people to be prophets, teachers, uh, apostles. But I, I remember a Bethel church in Reading was teaching in their uh, spiritual gifts class that that they were giving out gifts, whether it's gifts of uh, gift of prophecy, especially specifically, they were giving out gifts of prophecy and just encouraging people to uh, try it out. And I thought that that's a I wouldn't say that oh that's heresy. I wouldn't call it that, but there's something uh, iffy about that kind of thing. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you there, right? Let me let me let, let let's talk about that a little bit because I understand. I feel like I understand some of where that's coming from, and I do share some of concerns that I hear from you as we're talking about this, right? In the charismatic movement in general, there is this sense where we have to we have to take risks, right? Like mm-hmm. John Wimber was very famously, you know, said risk is spelled R I or faith is spelled R I S K, right? You've yeah, got to take I agree. risks, yeah, yeah, and you've got to. Um, you've got to like lean on the edge of faith, and um, I see that that's a very strong value in the charismatic movement. Mm-hmm. So for me, when I was in college, I was part of a, char- a charismatic group there, and after, right after that, I served at a reformed charismatic church. But what I oh. found in time was that they were about ten times as reformed as they were charismatic. <laughs> right? right. Like, I'm not surprised. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, and to be honest, I was really frustrated because I'm like, hey. You have to try and use the gifts in order for them to get used, right? If you don't try, if you don't take risks, we're not going to see any of the gifts being used. Right, and but these there was gifts this... have to be developed by usage. Yeah, but there was this sense at the church that trying to prophesy, right, or trying to do these things, well, you could be wrong. And if you could be wrong, then it might be, a, it might be sin, right? If you prophesy wrong, it might be sin. Or if you encourage somebody to speak out in tongues and it's not tongues— well, then you're deceiving that person, right? So there's this sense in which, and, and the thing is, I can understand some of that, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's healthy. I remember I had a friend who went to a healing conference, and, you know, what they decided to do at the end of the conference was they um, they took off their glasses, and they're like, I'm healed, I'm claiming my healing. Mm-hmm. And they drove home without their glasses <laughs> on, right? And I was like, are you crazy? <laughs> right? Well, like, that's, that's, right, that's risk. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Like, I'm like, that is, that's, that's craziness. I feel like that's craziness. But at the same uh-huh. time, I understand their heart. Their yeah. heart is, I, we have to, I want to do whatever I can to realize this healing. And if healing requires faith and I just have to believe in all this kind of stuff, then I'm going to take a risk for it. So I understand the heart, but yeah, a lot of times adventures in the areas that are so unwise. Right? Well, before so we unwise. continue, I, I want to differentiate uh, that I don't want to lump uh, NAR along with all charismatic movement because uh, I do respect the Pentecostal movement and they do have uh, lines, they do have doctrinal values. And uh, 
I do agree with a lot of their I disagree with some of their charismatic beliefs, but I consider them as a legit uh, branch of Christianity in which it's cool. I get it. Mm -hmm. Although there's a overemphasis on the Holy Spirit more than the Word of God. Yeah, I get it. But I think mm -hmm. NAR becomes dangerous because there's a greater emphasis on apostolic teaching and uh, like dominion theology that we're going to take over this land, including spiritual mapping. And I think it, it crosses the line, although the lines are a bit blurry between charismatic and NAR, I think there's a danger when you go more towards NAR than just charismatic movement. I have no yeah, problems see, with the charismatic movement. I mean, the problem here is the line is so blurry. I don't know where those lines are. True. You're right. You're right. Right. I, I really don't like, because I don't, I don't, like, I would not feel comfortable saying, I am uh, NAR, I'm in the NAR camp, right? Because right? I'm like... And nobody I don't, says that. Nobody says yeah. that, really. Well, I don't know who all is in the camp, you know what I mean? Like, right. But I do know there are leaders that I highly respect, that I, I follow their teachings, and they are branded as NAR people. Mm -hmm. So that's the, that's the difficulty with this whole discussion. It's like, it, it just seems like there is this lumping together of people that is somewhat artificial... And it's like I I don't know, I, I I don't know who the heck they're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. And that's part of the the difficulty here. I read a book. I I mentioned it earlier. I read this book called God's Super Apostles. It's written by a professor at Biola, mm -hmm. and um, it did feature you know some of the people that I respect, um, like Bill Johnson, like um, Mike Bickle, mm -hmm. and some of these guys. And to be honest, I was so I was I was angry reading that book. Because what they lumped this them all together, did, right? What's that? They lumped them all together with Kenneth Copeland and other false teachers, and yeah, there was surely some lumping together. But it was it was not just that; it was it was uncharitable interpretations of their teaching. So they would take quotes of them, mm. but then they would interpret it in like the worst possible way. Mm. You know, like it's like what people do to Trump. I feel like you know, it's <laughs> like you know, it's like what the media does, where they 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 take his literal words. But they run the worst parts in the worst possible interpretation, and then they trump it out. Look at what this guy thinks. And mm. it just felt like the same thing with a lot of these leaders where it was like, hey, no, but I'm familiar with their teaching. Like one of the, the common complaints that you hear, a criticism against the movement, is that they claim to be apostles and they claim to have authority over you, right? Like you have to obey them because they're apostles. But those guys that I, that I respect, they're the least controlling leaders that I know in a lot of ways. They're not, they're not pressuring people. They're not trying to manipulate people. They're not saying, hey, I'm an apostle, so you have to listen to me. In fact, that's why most of them, even though I think they privately believe they're apostles, they won't publicly say that because they don't want to communicate this idea that you have to listen to them or you have to obey them or they have authority over you or something like that because that can get very controlling. Hmm. So I, I did want to ask this. Um, let's let's try and identify a couple things where we agree and disagree that there are concerning teachings. We've already touched on some of those things, you know, in this movement already. I'd love it if we could just flesh out um, a couple of these things. I know Bill Johnson is kind of in the heart of the controversy here, mm -hmm. and um, because I've I've heard a number of, you know, um a number of problematic things at Bethel and the things I agree with a number of those problematic teachings. Yeah, but I also think that we don't really have to uh, pinpoint or critique specific leaders or even specific churches because it's not a movement that's really solidified in their teachings anyway. So there are aspects that we could talk about in the movement that I disagree with. One of them which we discussed is apostleship. Another thing I'd say is uh, the emphasis on dominion theology that okay. it's up to us to take over the land. Um, yeah, although they wouldn't say in those very words, actually some would, uh, but um, the sense in which it's a, it's a, it's like a hyper post-millennialism. Post-millennialism is a belief that, by the way, is, a, is that the kingdom of God will physically take over uh, the earthly kingdoms, right. which was mostly disregarded after World War II because uh, we pretty much realized that that's not going to happen. We just have to wait for Jesus. But in this restoration movement, um, it seems like, yeah, it's up to us. There's an emphasis on us, up to us. Although in classic post-millennial theology, it was that God will set up his kingdom. 
uh, gradually taking over the kingdoms of the world, and it'll be more like a theocracy or something of that kind of nature. Right. But uh, but this new uh, NAR teaching is not classic post-millennialism. It's that we have to take over. We have to uh, take over the areas of influence in the media, politics, and and we as Christians will. It's it's up to us. It's just, I feel like when I listen to them, I feel like the emphasis is on me, and I gotta I gotta. We, we have to do it together to uh, take over the land. Right, yeah. So this is actually a great area of discussion because I am a strong proponent of what is called seven mountain teaching, right? Right, okay. yeah. right. and I think there is a lot of misunderstanding and I have been called the dominionist and stuff like that. So I think this is a, actually a great forum for us to discuss this and flesh this out a little bit. So first of all, I am not um, post-millennial, all right? Okay. I'm pre-millennial. Um, I think Jason, Pastor Jason, explained it well. Postmillennialism is this idea we're going to we're going to take over the Christianity is going to take over all the nations before Jesus returns. Mm-hmm. I don't have that paradigm personally, right? It seems um, like nobody does these days. Yeah, I mean, you do run into pockets of it. I mean, mm-hmm. some of the Bethel stuff does sound like a little postmillennial sometimes, mm-hmm. but um, I simply say that I do believe that Christians are called to infuse every. Um, sphere of society with righteousness. I agree with that, yes. Right? Mm -hmm. And I I teach that strongly. Like, that's an important thing, right? Like, Mm -hmm. that when you're working at your job, that you're fighting for a righteous culture at your job, right? If you're in the media, you're fighting for a righteous culture in the media. If you're in Hollywood, you're fighting for a righteous culture in Hollywood. So you're refusing to compromise on areas of integrity in all of these places, and you're trying to promote cultures that honor biblical values in each of these areas of society to shine a light in the darkness yes exactly so that's how i interpret all the seven mountain seven mountains teachings right meaning i don't think it's very unorthodox i think it's pretty standard i think it's just some of the language sounds confusing to people when they first hear it and they think oh we're supposed to like I don't know, like we're supposed to make Hollywood a Christian Hollywood and you only do Christian movies and you like, or something like that. And, but that's, that's not really exactly what's going on here. There's not an expectation that you're going to be successful in taking over everything. But the idea is, yeah, our calling is to be salt and light. So we're supposed to try to infuse righteousness into the culture in all of these places. And from a personal standpoint, the reason why this is a big deal is because, at least for me, my whole understanding of what it meant to build the kingdom or to work for the kingdom was to build the local church, right? How do you build the kingdom? Well, you serve at your local church, you tithe to your local church, you bring people to your local church, all of that kind of stuff. But, you know, my my understanding has has flipped on this. And it wasn't that that was an explicit teaching. It's just that was my, that was my paradigm. But the Seven Mountain stuff has really helped me have a vision for how Christians have a calling outside the local church, right? And it's important that they are they are laboring for the kingdom in their places of business, in in you know places of culture. That we have to speak into these areas because that's that is how we seek the kingdom outside of local church context. But so, you know I mean, what you've said so far. I think most Christians will agree that we are ambassadors of Christ in the world, in the world, but not of it, light and salt of the world. And I think most Christians will say, oh yeah, of course, as kingdom citizens, we are to be infused into our culture and the media and not be our own little salt shaker, you know, just hang out with Christians mm-hmm. and only watch Christian movies and read Christian books. I know we agree on that point, but I think NAR, I think, um, steps over more than that, right? I don't think so. I mean, like I said, because look, the the most popular NAR teacher on Seven Mountain stuff is Lance Wall now. Okay, he's the guy that is going to be invited oh. in a lot of these places, and I love Lance Wall now. My understanding of of what he's talking about is this is what I'm espousing right now, and he's like the Seven Mountains guy. That's what I mean. I think that mo it's it's more misunderstood by people who don't understand some of the language involved, and then it's purposefully interpreted in a way that is uncharitable. Right, because look, yeah, I, again, I agree. Some people will do that, and uh, including me, I haven't uh, directly heard, read the teachings of the Seven Mount. I only heard that things about it from both sides, mm-hmm. and it, it it feels like to me, since I haven't really read the the actual materials, it seems like to me that 
is not just ambassadors of Christ in this world, but that we Christians were going to take over. And we're going to take over uh, by praying uh, for, over spiritual specific places. That's part of spiritual mapping. That we're going to uh, pray over this district, uh, pray against the demon of Los Angeles or whatever. And then, but that we are going to spiritually take over and it's going to manifest physically in our culture, in our politics. So it's not yes. just simply as ambassadors represent Christ, which I totally agree with, but I think there's an emphasis on taking over. Am I wrong about that? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a good question. It's a good question. I, when I hear that type of thing, I tend to hear it more as like we can take over. Not like we will, like it's destined that we're going to take over, mm. but like there is a there is an expectation of victory. We can have victory, right? Meaning we can infuse, let's say, Hollywood with righteousness, right? Like that that is possible, and you know there is prophecy out there, right? And and and, and I believe this that there's going to be a great revival in America. That we're going to have a great reformation of our culture. That America after the revival is going to look much more Christian than the America of today. So in that kind of a sense, you know, that's how I would understand some of that takeover language. But, you know, again, there's always going to be extreme versions of everything, right? So mm. I'm sure that there are people out there talking about a very extreme version of this and we're literally going to take over and <laughs> – but not in, the, not in the circles of people that I respect for sure in the movement. And I, mm. I would say, look, I'm friends with a lot of the leaders in a lot of these different ministries. Okay. So that's that's my perspective. Again, we're dealing with 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 imprecise theology a lot of times, which is where a lot of the confusion can come from. So that that's the nature of this whole conversation is difficult. Is I'm sure there are some people who are speaking literal takeover, but insofar as I understand the leaders of these movements, I I'm I don't I don't think that that's how they mean it. I don't think that's how they mean it. Okay, um, I will say that one area where this gets controversial is in. Um, like that's very common today. So, for example, I I'm very outspoken um, with politics, things like abortion, mm -hmm. right? Things like um, you know traditional marriage, right? That I yeah, think that's and important. We as Christians have to be vocal about those things. Yes, yes I'm very vocal, and a lot of that understanding flows from this idea of um, seven mountain theology. I'm supposed to influence our culture, even if that offends people, and that's where I get a lot of pushback from. Um, Christians of all varieties where they say, hey, you're some kind of dominionist where you feel like everybody has to, you know, be Christian. And But the problem is they're not Christian. We can't expect them to live like Christians. And so we're not supposed to be speaking forcefully about these issues of morality and righteousness. I have a personal problem with that kind of, 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 of attitude that we're supposed to essentially hide all the offensive parts of the Bible and something like that so that we can win converts to Christ. <laughs> I I don't agree with that. I don't think that that's, that's right. Right. I, I, I agree with you. And all that you've said about dominion theology, I agree with you. But I feel like you're missing that, that argument that I've heard from NAR, that it's more than just representing Christ and letting our voices being heard. But there's a sense in which that I've listened to that it's like there's a sense of taking over, maybe not by force, but that as we... For example, as we were called to uh, pray over territorial demons over government, mm -hmm. not even over Washington, D.C., just over government in general, that there were territorial demons over government. And so as we cast them out, as we call them out, that through our prayer, that power will be restored to us, to Christians in general, that from wealth or political power, it'll be taken away from them and restored back to us. And that emphasis was on the word restoration, that that things that were lost to us from the fall, from Adam's sin, that through our prayers and through fighting against the demonic powers of territories and government and media, that we were called to uh, restore that lost sense of wealth, lost sense of political power and of that sort, back to us. Sure. And that was part of that dominion theology that, that I understood at that time. Sure, yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, the thing is, like, I could, like, as you say that, I feel like I can imagine that being taught at some conference somewhere, right? So I, I, I'm, I'm not going to say that that is totally wrong, right? Because I think that that type of stuff probably does get taught in some circles. But like I said, that's why it's so, it's so uh, nebulous, right? All of this stuff. I would say 
that, yeah, I agree with a, a, a large portion of what you just said there. Meaning, I do believe we're in the middle of a spiritual war, that there mm-hmm. are really demons that that have positions of influence in different places in society. Yes. And that we engage mm-hmm. in prayer and in spiritual warfare, which is, I, I believe, fighting for truth in these, in these places, and we can mm-hmm. dislodge them. So I believe that there is something of a battle where we can dislodge these powers from positions of influence, and we can fight for people of righteousness to have positions of influence in these institutions and yes. areas of society. Yeah, I agree. And that those mm-hmm. are good things, and that we should be engaged in that kind of a battle. But I'm not bringing the same kind of triumphalism of like, this is for sure what's going to happen. You're going to for sure be successful, or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the part that sounds a little post millennial, and I, I would kind of disagree with. I think, look, we're in a real war. And we're not going to have total victory until Christ comes back. That's my personal understanding. But yeah, I could believe that there are, are teachers that are teaching some variation or version of what you're espousing there. Mm-hmm. This is the this is the hard part. This is why, like, you know, part of me is like, you know, Catholicism for all of its flaws. It it must be nice to have some kind of hierarchical structure where you can correct people and like have accountability. I mean that look that's one of the huge flaws. I just feel like in Protestantism where everybody's teaching their own thing and it's like you know there's there's very little accountability or you don't know what you know this movement believes or this pastor believes and you have to find out like every single leader has slightly different theology. Mm-hmm. That's what it seems like to me. Yeah. Right? And so it, it's you know it's it's a tricky it's a tricky thing for sure. So I hear mixture when I hear that teaching that you're giving. I'm like, hey, there's a lot of parts of that that I think are really good, and there are some parts that sound a little troubling to me. Like when you say that, mm-hmm. and um, and yeah, I, I'll, I'll just be honest. There are like, if I go to certain conferences that are NAR conferences, I will be uncomfortable with some of the teaching, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. For sure. Like I'll be like, you know, the way that he's putting that, I I don't I don't agree with. Like there is a type of um, there is a type of seven mountain dominion teaching that's all about like getting influence and getting, um, you know, and, and it, that has prosperity mixed in with it where it's like, yeah. you know, if you are doing right in God, your influence will grow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. Like, and uh, all that stuff I have, I have huge problems with. I remember I went to a conference one time where one of the speakers was an Instagram insta- influencer, mm-hmm. like a Christian. And, um, you know, she had, she had a nice Instagram page that she dressed up her babies in like funny outfits. Uh-huh. And so she had a huge Instagram following and I'm like, okay, that's cool. That's cool. But why is she sharing at this conference? Right? Like <laughs> what? Like, and the, the implication seemed to be, Hey, you want to, you want to be like her if you, and get if a you lot pray of more, You'll get more followers. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, and that type of understanding of seven mountain stuff, I'm just like, that to me is a total misunderstanding. But, there is stuff like that out there, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I just don't like it. Okay, so maybe I'm I'm in your camp in, in with that, right? I'm like, dude, no, we have to sacrifice our prosperity many times to follow Christ, right? If you define, if you define increasing influence and increasing wealth as signs of God's favor, then men, Jesus was a failure, right? John the Baptist was a failure, mm-hmm. right? The apostles were failures in many ways, right? You can't have that shallow of a discernment. And um, it, it, so in that sense, I would say me and you are on the same page with some of that stuff and some of the prosperity teaching that does have tentacles in the charismatic movement in general and in some of these NAR type of places, for sure. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Jason, this has been a great conversation, man. Is there any um, anything else that you would like to bring up in terms of concerning teachings that you have heard um, or teachings that you really appreciate in the NAR movement? Well, what I generally appreciate about the charismatic movement is the emphasis on the Holy Spirit. I think many churches, whether they're Presbyterians or Baptists or Methodists, uh, I've studied them all, by the way, uh, there's not much emphasis on the Holy Spirit. None will say he's not active. Everybody believes in prayer. Everybody will say that, oh yeah, we believe in miracles, that God could still answer prayer and, and do all these great things, but there's no practice of it. I think charismatics uh, take practice of it very seriously as almost a requirement. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes that's it's wrong when they require baptism of the Holy Spirit or speaking in tongues to do specific roles of teaching. Yet, um, generally speaking, especially people of the NAR movement, uh, they're very uh, devoted to God. They're passionate. Uh, 
and they have a sense in which we are supposed to use the gifts that God has given to us. Now, mm-hmm. I think uh, they blur the lines of what gifts are, but um, but I think the gifts of the Spirit is very active today. For example, I, I believe that we are called to uh, uh, pray over each other, and some are called to prophecy over each other, but I wouldn't call that person a prophet. I wouldn't say uh, this person has been anointed and, and he has that specific gift. But I think uh, in today's time, the gifts are more uh, fluid. Uh, that's how I understand it in terms of practice. Uh, that as I'm praying for someone, I may feel a word of knowledge. But that may not mean I have a gift of word of knowledge. Mm-hmm. For example, on missions trips, I've, I've done miraculous healings of people who couldn't walk or people who couldn't hear or, or talk. And yet, uh, I wouldn't say I have the gift of healing. But during those times of prayer, during those specific instances, the Holy Spirit is able to work. And we see miracles because the Holy Spirit is alive and active today. But I think uh, where some charismatics and, and most NAR people will, will make the gifting so, uh, so elevated in which, oh, he is a prophet or he is someone who heals. And it's like, I don't think it was meant to be like that kind of position. But, that, yeah. but I do love how there's an emphasis on the Holy Spirit, especially in evangelism. Um, I learned that from the NAR teachers in which... Uh, I forgot the exact terminology, but it was like like victorious evangelism in which you go out um, expecting to do works of miracles or of healing or, or word of knowledge so that when you evangelize, it has a certain sense of power. Gosh, I wish I, I knew the terminology that they used. It was really nice. But uh, I do believe yeah, that, like that we evangelize. Right? Yeah, power evangelism. That's what it mm-hmm. is. Yeah, mm-hmm. that we go out uh, seeking to uh, pray over people and, and maybe... Uh, from the Holy Spirit, get some uh, word of knowledge on that person or, or even miracles, miraculous healings. Mm-hmm. And I think that's yeah. lacking in other parts of um, Protestantism or Christianity in which we don't expect the Holy Spirit to be active in our evangelism. So I love that about uh, the charismatic movement in which they recognize that the Holy Spirit is active. We're supposed to use Him and be part of what He is doing. And so I love that. But I think there is an overemphasis on um on that sometimes yeah yeah well I, I think i agree with you completely right and, and in fact it sounds to me like if you have a if you have a strong value for power evangelism i mean i mean help me understand is is that common in the more anti-nar movement <laughs> no that's not that's, I, yeah i'm like yeah and because i come from a more cessationist theology background like westminster seminary mm-hmm. um all of us all of us will recognize yes holy spirit is active yes he does miracles yes he can cast out demons but there's no practice of it you go to a presbyterian church doing evangelism at a park there's no expectation or any teaching or even a suggestion of hey uh, allow the holy spirit to do miracles or pray for healing there's none of that yet you see more of that almost like almost as an instructional do it. Try it. Let's see what happens. Right. More in the NAR camp. Right, right. Yeah, I, I I feel the same way. Like I'm I'm very thankful for that. Um, one of the one of the things I have concerns about in, you know, again, I, NAR charismatic circles, is a lot of times there is not um, there's not an emphasis on actually leading someone to repentance. Right? I think that that is um, something that is concerning. A lot of times there's you know, this thing, hey, we want to see a miracle, and we want, we want the person to feel God's love. Which well, I let think me is just a great... say, I think that's more of a problem with general American Christianity. I wouldn't mm-hmm. pinpoint that as a specific NAR concern. Mm-hmm. I think in general Christianity today, I think there's no emphasis on repentance. For example, Joel Osteen. And so, mm-hmm. uh, so I think in general, Christianity, whether it's Presbyterianism or Methodist, I think you'll see that, not just NAR. Yeah, well, thanks. I appreciate that. I think that I, I think you're probably right about that, right? Um, but yeah, that's um, I know like Todd White, um, yeah. somebody who I respect and appreciate. I know that he, um, you know, he was basically challenged, I think, on not calling for repentance during his gospel presentation. And I saw a video where he was like, repenting of that and saying yeah it actually they're right i do need to try and lead people to repentance oh. and so, hmm. so so i appreciate that you know like i i think that's partly how the body is supposed to function meaning you've got guys like todd white whose emphasis and heart is really to see miracles 
and, and signs and wonders while he's evangelizing. And then you've got you know teachers in the body of Christ are saying, but hey, the way that you need to evangelize is you you do need to call people to repentance. And Todd receiving that, I think that's a picture of how the body's supposed to work, right? Now, obviously, mm-hmm. sometimes it's not the most charitable way that we correct one another and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But as a whole, I'm really thankful for that dynamic, right? I'm super thankful for the teachers, you know, in the body who are, you know, calling the body to value the scriptures and, you know, have their doctrine order. And I'm thankful for some of these charismatic and, and even some of these NAR leaders who are emphasizing the need for power and healing and having expectation for those things. So honestly, Jason, you and I don't sound that that far apart for, to me. And I understand if we dug into some of the our minor doctrine, I'm sure we would find more differences. But in terms mm-hmm. of just overall values for these things, we sound pretty similar to me. But I do want to clarify for the audience members who are listening that I am classic five-point Calvinist reformed, that I'm not someone who's just blurring the lines, but I, I am truly uh, representing Calvinism. And we are open to charismatic movements and things like that, except with some reservation and caution. And that's why in many of our teachings, although we believe the work of the Holy Spirit, we'll, we'll caution against trying out the gifts because of caution. We understand that gifts can work, but, but we're just more on the cautious side. That's what it is. And yeah. also, um, um, in, in terms of the NAR leaders, many of them, I'll consider them my brothers and sisters in Christ. Although I disagree with some of their teaching, I do believe that many of them, they do know the true gospel. They do know Christ as Lord and Savior, which I won't say for uh, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, yeah, they're not my brothers and sisters, but NAR leaders, many of them, they are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And uh, even if they do teach some wrong things, I know their heart is in the right place. Uh, they, they love God. Um, they're devoted to Christ. They want people, and especially Christians, to grow. They want to disciple people. And I do understand that. I just think that their understanding of the Bible is just lacking. So I think that's what leads them to uh, say things that are just heretical sometimes. But their heart is in the right place. I think they need more biblical training, which, I mean, we all do, right? But I think generally speaking, they are my brothers and sisters. Yeah, well, I, I definitely appreciate that. And I think, um, yeah, I, I think we, we feel similarly. I think uh, there's one last question I'd like to explore with you if you have a little bit more time. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, you brought up that in reform circles, they tend to be more cautious. And I hear I hear mm-hmm. that position a lot, which is like, I'm open to the gifts of the Spirit, right. but I'm cautious about it. Exactly. Right? And, um, you know, I, I, I feel like part of me understands some of that, and part of me thinks that that's very problematic. Right. And I'll, I'll explain a little bit. Like, I think, look, from the Bible, you can't have a cautious mentality towards the gifts in the sense that, you know, Paul says in First Corinthians 14, uh, we're commanded to eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, right? Especially that you may prophesy. And there is this constant encouragement that you are to seek after these things, right? Paul talks in particular about prophecy in that chapter as being something that is extremely important for the body. And, um, and he says explicitly, do not despise prophetic words, mm-hmm. right? And what I see in many of those of my brothers and sisters who are open but cautious is they're not intending to disobey those passages, but it sure seems like they are. Like they, they've decided, you know, we're not going to eagerly seek after the gifts. I You know, I, I've had leaders, you know, <laughs> I had one leader tell me, you know, you know, a little Holy Spirit is good. But too much Holy Spirit is not good, right? <laughs> and, and I know what he means, right? Yeah, I know he's not yeah. trying to give a theologically precise statement there, right? He's mm-hmm. saying like we want to avoid the abuses that we see in some of the in some charismatic circles and stuff like that. And the thing is, I'm fully on board with that, right? Like I totally agree. We should not be doing some of these abuses that we see in the charismatic movement. But I just feel like we have to have a heart where we are eagerly desiring the gifts. We're trying to grow in them. We're trying to train people to use them. We're trying to get prophetic words and test prophetic words. We're trying to do all of that. Um, and we don't need to go into, you know, um, abuses or really weird places. Although I, I understand it can that can happen. But my heart is always like, hey, let's, let's pursue these things in biblical order. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. And there are many charismatics who believe and teach what you just said. But even in just the past 60 years, we've seen so many abuses, especially within the charismatic movement, especially even when uh, John Wimber's Vineyard movement started in the 60s. Even then, we saw so much chaos uh, and just 
yes, just as you said, um, it's a it's a baby movement. Uh, it's still learning the game, pretty much. But still, uh, we saw so many abuses in, in prophecy, in healings, and in, in or fake healings and psychosomatic movements, in which um, we became more cautious because of that. I think yeah. it wasn't so like that maybe before the 60s, before 60 years ago. But yeah. um, but now it's like, yeah, there's so many false teachers out there. So we take more cautiously the teachings that say uh, to test the spirits, to test the prophecies and prophets, and to have a higher standard of what it means to be a prophet. That does it really mean to be 100% correct? Now, I don't stand by that, but I could understand where people are coming from because, hey, you can't be a prophet if only 40% of your prophecies are true. So where do you draw the line? And well, the Bible draws the line specifically at 100%. Why don't we go with that? So I don't do that, but I see where some people will because we're cautious on, okay, because we've seen people fall off the edge, people in the charismatic movement going to, and then a few years later, they're so jaded and they, they just leave God altogether. Of course, that could happen in any denomination, of course, but we've seen a lot of that happen where people are, going after false teaching and false teachers. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I, I agree, right? I think I agree. Like, um, I think my only heart is this, that when I look at a lot of these charismatic leaders, what I what I see is they I feel like they're honestly trying their best, right? And again, every leader has different strengths and weaknesses. Mm -hmm. So the reality is most of the leaders in the charismatic church are not mostly on the teacher side. Right. right, they're more like on the on the prophetic side and mm -hmm. more, so they're they're gifted like that, um, and I just see it as these are these are deficiencies because of the lack of unity in the body, right? That's that's my personal you know um, perspective on this. Mm. Like I feel like you have these leaders who they're very spiritually sensitive and they sense things like demons and they do get dreams and things like this, and the problem is they're their gifts are rejected at a lot of more conservative churches. They're not esteemed. They're not honored. And so they naturally find their way into these more charismatic churches where there's not yeah. strong doctrine and things like that. So I tend to see this as more an issue of disunity than an issue of like teacher, like charismatic teachers who are trying to have bad doctrine. It's just not their primary gift. Like, like for me, I'm, I'm like a, a learner, right? Mm -hmm. I can just sit and, and study scripture and like read, commentaries and things like this and i really enjoy that but a lot of these leaders they hate that stuff you know they, they want to be out like praying for people and casting mm -hmm. out demons and and this type of thing so they just don't have you know the the doctrine the study you know and they need people like you right they need people l like that are abundant in the in more calvinist reform movement you mm -hmm. know and again i'm not saying they're mutually exclusive right but we need one another and that's that's just my paradigm and it's very difficult it's very hard right because there's so many areas of minor doctrine that turn into reasons for division right i have friends of mine that i agree with like 95% of their theology but because of the 5% that we disagree about it's like it's very difficult to do ministry together sometime mm. <laughs> right i agree yeah i totally see that mm. yeah so i mean I just say this, Jason, I'm super thankful for your ministry in the body. I did watch a couple of your videos on YouTube. I thought they were really great. And, um, you know, I, I would just encourage you with the NAR stuff. I, I want to stand with you against false teaching and false doctrine. I want to stand with you against abuses in this movement. And Amen. just from our short conversation, I would say I think there's probably a lot of area of, areas of agreement for us. Um, but my encouragement would also is somebody who is, you know, more in the movement, um, like we have the same heart. Right? Mm -hmm. I'm trying to raise up people that have a strong value for doctrine that are not falling for some of these abuses. And, um, you know, I, I hope that we can have a, a greater unity in the body. Amen. 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 All right. Well, thanks, Jason. Really appreciate you coming on today, man. Thanks for having me.